Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Stop. Namihi nui, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on in the show, we'll be hearing more about the international drilling ship, Joydi's resolution, and what it's been up to for the past two months. But first up, we're off to Zealandia in Wellington. In the last couple of decades, many bird, reptile, insect, and yes, plant species have been reintroduced to this predator-free, fenced sanctuary. But the way they're bringing back the latest arrival, a species of mistletoe, is a little unusual. Hi there, I'm Travis Moody, River Ranger for Wellington Regional Council. Now tell me about this mistletoe seed. Where has it come from? It's come from the banks of Te Awakairangi Hut River. It's an upper hut uh, near the Moonshine Bridge on the side of State Highway 2. So it's great news. Um, we're able to get some rare native plants spread around. So what's the story with the tree that this particular mistletoe was growing on? Um, so these trees aren't native trees. They're tree lucerne. They've been planted as a roadside planting when they constructed the highway there in the 80s, I believe. Seeds just settled there naturally through um, bird placement and um, become quite a healthy little, little shrub there. Yeah, it's in fruit at the moment, so we're collecting it and giving it a good shot to spread it around. So that mistletoe and its host are healthy, this is just about sharing the love? Well, that's that's the concern at the moment. The host isn't looking that healthy. It's not a very long-lived tree, tree lucerne, um, and some of it's dying. So it's a good time now to, to collect the seed while it's um, prime for the for the spreading and propagation. Was it hard to collect? Was it high off the ground? Some of it was, but no, it, was, it wasn't very hard at all, really. Just, just like picking small, very small cherries or something like that. I'm Pascal Michel and I work at Zealandia. I'm Finn McCulloch and I work at Otari Wilton's Bush. So, Pascal, I'm going to talk to you first because you have a pottle tucked under your arm there that's filled with beautiful little orange fruits. Tell me about those. So we collected them this morning to try to spread those plants through the Wellington region. They're quite ripe, so it's the good time of the year to pick them up. Uh, usually birds will do that job, but um, today it's us doing the job. It's called green misoto. It has a green flower, and the berries are bright orange, and they're very striking. Uh, if you see the original plant, it's just full of, of uh, seeds, and fruit is just gorgeous, really beautiful. And um, this is a species that is missing in New Zealandia. We don't have it, unfortunately, so we're hoping that we can bring it back. As you see, our fin is squashing them very nicely at the moment. And do you want to tell me what would normally happen with these seeds when a bird comes along, compared to what you're doing here? We're removing the, the, the fleshy skin from the fruit, to reveal the, the very sticky substance that, that surrounds the seed. Yeah, so I'm guessing that when it would pass through the bird that the digestive tract would remove the fleshy skin. 
And one of the interesting things with this seed is the more you work it with your fingers, the more sticky it gets. So potentially, as it went through the gut of an animal, like a bird or a lizard, it comes out the other side having gone through that sort of processing and released all that sticky resin stuff. And as it came out the other side, it attaches to the tree and it latches on. Like a natural glue. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So are they feeling sticky, Finn? Very sticky, yeah, yeah. So you've done a good job there? I you think done them so, all? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got, what, about yeah. 100 there? Oh, could Maybe. Be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we've got thousands uh, that we collected this morning. I'm uh, Rhys Mills from Namanu uh, Nature Reserve in Waikanae. And I gather you're the mistletoe expert here. I've been working with mistletoe for about the last 15 years or so, so starting to learn a thing or two about them. So you're here to explain to people what we need to do, because basically you guys need to be the birds, huh? Pretty much. Back in the day, the, uh, there would have been uh, birds that would be doing the job that we're doing here now, such as the New Zealand thrush, which is long since extinct. Some of the introduced species like blackbirds and some of the European species and also uh, native species like the uh, silver eye have now taken over that uh, role to a degree where they can still find mistletoe plants. But certainly there are a lot of mistletoe populations that are really struggling, such as the source of these ones here up the uh, Hutt Valley and we're trying to uh, move them into safe places like Zealandia here where they can continue to thrive. So can you explain to me what's going to happen with those seeds because the mistletoe plant is a parasite isn't it? Yeah it's a hemiparasite so basically it uh, means that it steals uh, nutrient and water from the host um, by burrowing a little uh, root down into the host and sucking it out that way but it also has uh, green leaves with uh, chlorophyll which through the process of uh, photosynthesis also make food for the plant. So not a true parasite. So these seeds have got to basically get themselves attached to this host plant. What is this plant, by the way? So this is uh, kohuhu, or um, Pitosporum uh, tenuifolium, which is a uh, species that could live up to about 100 years, which is what we really want to sort of choose as a uh, host for the mistletoes. We want to find a plant that's going to sort of outlive us so that the mistletoes have a good chance of staying on for a long time without too much more additional work from us. So what's going to happen in the next few months? The seed's going to germinate? Yeah, so probably in uh, four to six weeks' time you might start to see the early stages of uh, germination. You'll see one end of the seed will actually start to green up and uh, before it pushes its uh, little cotyledons or seed leaves out, little pair of uh, leaves, then once those seed leaves are out, it will sit there until this time next year. So uh, uh, next next autumn, um, basically, they'll just sit there and uh, try and get that little root down into the host. It will be this time next year that you'll actually start to see the signs of the root actually uh, getting in, which is generally sending up a second pair of leaves and sometimes the beginning of a development of a slight stem. And that's generally a pretty good sign that uh, they've got established. But the big killer for the uh, mistletoe seeds is actually the first summer. Sitting there without uh, any means of getting water from the host and, of course, nice hot, dry summer, these seedlings will just desiccate and dry out. It's quite important that we uh, sort of select our hosts and our sites, our aspect and that you don't put them in an area that's too sort of hot and dry but you don't want them in too much shade either. So how big are these mistletoe plants going to grow when they're mature? Oh probably about a metre by metre roughly for the species. 
This is the green flowered mistletoe. But again, it depends a lot on the host that they're actually on. There are good hosts, there are bad hosts. And certainly if it's, if it's struck, lucky to get established on one of, the, uh, one of the good hosts, they can absolutely thrive. How big are the flowers? The flowers are tiny, um, only a few millimetres across. We have other mistletoes that are red though, don't we? Yes, we we do. Yeah, yeah. we've got a number of different species, actually eight different species. There were nine, Um, the ninth is now thought to be extinct, but the other eight are still holding on in areas of the country. So I've heard that some of those ones, like the extinct one, are real ice cream species for possums. Oh yes, they absolutely love them. A lot of mistletoes sort of seemed to disappear for a while and uh, we're not sure if it's just um, through possum browsing that sort of thing until we started doing a lot more control on possums or um, whether it's just more education and people are recognising them more that we seem to be finding more and more sites of them around the country. So you're putting quite a few seeds on this tree, is this just the more the merrier? Pretty much. We'll achieve probably close to 100% germination of the seeds. Um, Most of those seedlings will actually die during the first summer. I mean, I have had situations where I've actually, on a single stem like this, I've ended up with close to 20 plants actually survive. And if you've got the right host and a nice healthy host, it doesn't tend to affect them too much. The thing you've got to remember with a plant parasite, they don't have legs, so it's not in their best interest to actually kill their host Uh, because they can't just hop off and hop onto the next one. Have you already put some out at Namanu up on the Kapiti Coast? Yes, at Namanu we've got two species established. We've got this green-flowered mistletoe here, and we've also got uh, Quothsella um, uh, salicinoides, one of the um, pygmy mistletoes, which are beautiful little plants, but they're absolutely tiny. Um, You're sort of cupping your fingers together there. Yeah, yeah, they're really, really small, like little wee can- uh, groups of candlesticks, um, generally uh, in a manuka or kanuka. Sometimes you can just identify them just by seeing a little dark shadow in the tree. They're a whole different kettle of fish to actually uh, propagate uh, compared to this one. It's uh, almost microsurgery for uh, for those ones. But yeah, well on the way. Two species established and uh, we hope in time to be able to uh, uh, have all eight remaining species established up at Namanu um, with the aim of being able to educate people about the plight of mistletoes and we're actually working on a, uh, a mistletoe garden itself at the moment. So it's just going to bring all those species together in one place where we can talk to people about them. Dr Danielle Shanahan, Manager, Conservation and Research at Zelandia. So this is exciting, another new species for Zelandia. I'm so excited and this is a very cool one because it's just one of those little guys. It's an important part of our ecosystem but, you know, it's finally time to focus on these smaller things which we haven't had a chance to focus on before. So it's going to be a bit of an experiment. Absolutely, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. (laughs) So we've got to get through the first summer. How many trees do you think you're going to impregnate with mistletoe seeds today? Uh, You've got a few seeds there. Yeah, we do have a few seeds. Um, We're hoping to do a few more tomorrow. So we're hoping to have them scattered right throughout the bush, actually, to trial quite a different um, few host species, I guess, and host plants. So... Oh, well, I look forward to coming back in, I don't know, maybe a decade. I don't know how long it takes them to flower, but... Absolutely. Well, we're actually hoping it won't actually be too long. Maybe even a couple of years we might be seeing something, so hmm, who knows? (laughs) What about some of the other mistletoe species? Yeah, look, I'm really interested. We're in the process at the moment of planning our next 10 years of planting. Mistletoes are at high priorities at the moment. So, yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Danielle. Danielle Shanahan is Manager of Conservation and Research at Zelandia Sanctuary. 
We also heard from Zealandia botanist Pascal Michel, as well as Travis Moody from Greater Wellington Regional Council, Reese Mills from Namanu Nature Reserve, and Finn McKaylick from Otari Wilton's Bush. Kate Fakaronga mai kwekito tato au horihori, he hotaka e panaki te putaio, te taio, mete kopapa o te ora. You're with our changing world on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and last week on the show we heard from geologists about to set sail on the deep sea research ship, the Joides Resolution. They are currently drilling into an active underwater volcano. Now let's head on board again to find out what the ship was up to on its previous two-month-long expedition. Expedition leaders Laura Wallace from GNS Science and Damien Safer from Pennsylvania State University in the United States say that the ship spent its time drilling around New Zealand's largest earthquake fault, the Hikurangi Subduction Margin. Here, about 100 kilometres off the coast from Gisborne, the Pacific tectonic plate is being sucked under or subducted beneath the Australian plate. It's the source of some of New Zealand's biggest earthquakes. But some of them, you and I, won't even notice. To explain that little conundrum, here's Phil Barnes from Niwa in the sediment lab on the Joides Resolution. What we're trying to study here are referred to as slow-slip events on the subduction plate interface. So these are a kind of a fault slip phenomena that's been discovered about 15 to 20 years ago based on GPS measurements of the landscape moving and it's really opened up a new field of seismology. So basically what's been recognised is that slow slip events occur on subduction faults but nobody really understands yet what the mechanisms behind that are, why they occur, what implications might they have for large magnitude damaging earthquakes or tsunami and so there's a big international focus on slow slip events to try to figure out Know what's really behind those, and this expedition's been specifically focused on trying to target science around getting material that will help us to understand what's driving those processes. I think of slow slip events as like a slow motion earthquake. Is that fair? A slow motion earthquake, yeah. It's where basically the fault moves very slowly over a period of um, perhaps weeks to months in duration, and it might release slip similar to a large magnitude earthquake. But because it's released quite slowly, it doesn't release all that seismic energy in terms of ground motion and seismic waves that pass through the earth to make the ground shake. So it's relieving the stress on the plate boundary fault by allowing it to move and creep along in little bursts of activity. So we focused on some deep water sites out near the um, what we call the deformation front, which is where the plate boundary fault arrives at the sea floor. And by choosing some specific sites there, we were able to collect um, geophysical information and sedimentary cores of some of the rocks that are actually going down into the immediate fault which we know has got slow slip on it. So it's a way of sampling the rock types that might be involved in slow slip events at depths that are achievable with the, with the Geordie's resolution. Where we were actually drilling is an area where following the Kaikoura earthquake in November of 2016 there was a large slow slip events triggered all along the east coast of the North Island up on the Hikarangi subduction zone and those triggered slow slip events actually initiated and started in along through our drilling transect through the area that we, we drilled. So we're really um, that's brought up a whole other exciting set of issues that we'll be able to address with the with the cores and the data that we're getting out of this 
drilling expedition is exactly why that happened and how do these distant earthquakes like the Kaikoura earthquake actually kick off a whole raft of motion several hundred kilometers away. So this will provide new insights into that really interesting problem because that really large-scale triggering of slow slip events following Kakoda had not ever been observed before at that sort of scale anywhere in the world. So this makes this drilling expedition even more important than you know we originally had hoped. So what does it take for a ship like this to be able to drill cores like this when you're sitting over kilometres of water and you're trying to go a kilometre down through the, yeah. through the sediment? So it's really an impressive technical feat and engineering feat. So the ship actually has uh, nine thrusters, they're basically uh, propellers, that are positioned around the perimeter of the vessel. And then we have a, a, a what's called dynamic GPS. And so it uses GPS positioning to hold, by firing those thrusters off uh, under computer control, to hold position above the drill site to within a precision of, in some cases, as little as 10 or 20 meters. The pipe itself is made of steel, but it can bend a little bit, and so that allows, without much trouble, to drill in the same position and hold the, the ship's position as you drill down. And then the drilling itself is, is done by lowering the pipe to the seafloor and then pumping water through the pipe to lubricate the drill bit and then rotating it um, and allowing the, the weight of the pipe itself, basically, to press down into the sediments and drill ahead. So you can't really push down from above. You have to allow the weight of the pipe to, to bore itself into the sediments um, in a very controlled fashion. So how long does it take to, say, drill one average core? So uh, the, what we call the rate of penetration or the drilling rate is, is on the order of, depending on how stiff the, the rock formation is, uh, anywhere from about 10 to 30 or 40 meters per hour. So it's not particularly fast, but, but it's kind of uh, it's a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week operation. So this means that you'll make uh, headway on, uh, in the neighborhood of 100 to 150 meters in a day. And yeah. did the weather cooperate with you during that? I mean, do you have to pick weather windows, or is it weather regardless? So that's another thing. So the way that the drilling um, is done is that there's something called a heave compensator, which is essentially like a giant shock absorber as part of the drilling derrick. And that allows for the ship to bob up and down somewhere around three to four meters, in some cases a little bit more, and still allow us to drill downward without uh, damaging the drill pipe or, or causing disruption. Um, if the swells or the heave on the, of the ship gets above that, then we have to suspend operations. How many cores did you end up drilling? Between the four different sites that we drilled, we drilled over two kilometers of borehole, so two kilometers into the earth. But in terms of the amount of core material that we extracted from that borehole, it was a little over a kilometer of, of core material that we extracted from the four boreholes. So can you talk me through some of what we're looking at here, these cores, and tell me what you see in them? I mean, I see sediments and muds of, of different grittiness. Well, the cores in front of us on the bench here, they've got layers in them that we refer to as turbidites. So they're a turbidite deposit, and those deposits of mud and sand have been deposited from a current which is, which is called a turbidity current. So it's basically when you get an undersea avalanche of mud and sand cascade down the continental slope, and a, and a very turbulent density flow that entrains all of this mud and sand, whooshes down over the seafloor, and all of the sand layers, of course, they're more dense than the finer grain clay and silt. So they fall to the seafloor first. And the result is that over a period of hours and days, a turbidite is deposited from what was a density flow that was carrying all of that sediment. And those were deposited um, basically as sort of uh, sudden events where an, an avalanche of sand and muds come down from higher up the continental slope. It's been maybe shaken by an earthquake or some other process has triggered it. And we've had a what we call a mass failure of the sediment and it's, it's 
cascaded down the continental slope and settled down on the seafloor in the basin where we've been drilling. So, so is that the kind of thing that happened in the Kaikoura Trench after the Kaikoura earthquake? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that was a particular environment at the bottom of a canyon. And on the margin where we're working, um, we've done work on the continental slope and some sedimentary basins that are full of those same types of events, as well as down on the basin floor at 3,500 metres water depths, where material down there actually comes from both Gisborne sort of coastal area, as well as from the far south down the margin from as far south as Kaikoura as well. They were probably deposited on an average recurrence of about, say, once every one to 300 years. So, say, six metres of core in front of us. That represents a fair bit of time. How far down could you drill through the sediment? We drilled to a maximum depth on this expedition to just over a kilometre. So we drilled right through the, um, the upper sequence, which is made up of these kind of grey-coloured mud and sand layers with lighter-coloured units, which are volcanic ash. So that ash material has been blown by the wind following eruptions from the Taupo volcanic zone. And we entered then into an underlying sedimentary sequence that consisted of what we call pelagic sediments. They're much lighter coloured, they're made up of calcareous microfossils, and they formed long ago when the, the subducting plate was far away from the North Island. And it's been carried in towards the North Island by plate convergence, and then dumped on by these muddy layers on the top of that. So the deeper part of the long core that we collected was a mixture of these um, white-coloured and, and uh, pale-coloured pelagic sediments, and underlying that were fantastic, colourful breccias and conglomerates and mixed-up rocks that are basically of volcanic origin. Now, the, the ash layers are very distinctive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. These are um, white-coloured ash horizons. Sometimes they're uh, slightly pink. So these are what are called rhyolitic um, ash deposits, and that's, the, that's because they've been produced from the big... The big super eruptions through the Taupo to Rotorua um, region. So they're producing a lot of white pumice and white glassy material that's thrown up into the atmosphere very high during those big explosive events and carried by the westerly winds that we have that prevail and shift all that ash as a cloud that's floated offshore and arrived on the seafloor as these graded layers of, of white ash. Time to leave the sediment lab and head to another part of what is a very large ship. So collecting cores was one thing you did, but you did some other exciting things as well, Laura. Yeah, one of the biggest priorities for this expedition was the installation of some observatories, where basically where we put instrumentation beneath the seafloor up to half a kilometre to monitor changes in the Earth's crust during these slow-slip events. And in this case, because the slow-slip events that happen offshore Gisborne are so shallow, they're occurring you know, within, within a couple of kilometres of the seafloor, we essentially can get extremely, extremely close to where they're happening and make these measurements, which is really unprecedented. It essentially gives us a front row seat to, to look at what's happening during these slow slip events. So two observatories, these are things that you left in place? Yes, that's right. We installed two observatories. One of them is through an active, one of the main active faults accommodating plate motion at the Hikarangi subduction zone, and one of them was a little closer to land, about 40 kilometres offshore Gisborne, overlying the, the area of really large slow slip that happens. So these observatories will probably be in place you know, for up to a decade, maybe more, um, 
depending and be collecting data continuously for a long time and really transform our understanding of what's happening during these slow slip events in the offshore region because up until now we've largely been restricted to using land-based GPS methods to see these and so we're much further away from them with the GPS and now we can get right on top of them and see many different types of changes during and between the slow slip events. So you say they're measuring continuously. Are they sending the data back continuously? Um, no, the data is being logged on data loggers at the wellhead, and we have to go back with a remotely operated vehicle, uh, basically an underwater robot, and it plugs in what what is almost like plugging in a USB stick into your computer and downloading the data that's being collected on the data loggers. So we'll do that periodically over time. And then there's another set of instrumentation, measuring temperature and collecting fluid samples that will actually, in about five years, go and pull that instrument string out and, and get the samples and um, download the, the temperature data. You've been involved in putting similar observatories in other places, haven't you? Yeah, so we've had uh, actually a, a very similar set of installations offshore Japan, almost identical in terms of the geological situation. So one in this area that's kind of above the fault zone um, in the, the rock mass a few kilometers above the main the main fault zone, and then one that's spanning a, a, a shallow fault zone. So it's very similar in terms of the configuration. And in, in, in that system, we actually were, were drilling and putting in the observatories for the purpose, initially, of observing large earthquakes to, to try to see with really uh, great detail and really high precision the buildup of strain and stress and then the release of that strain and stress in earthquakes. And we were surprised that um, those data sets were so precise and the instruments so sensitive that we were actually able to to see uh, an unexpected set of slow-slip events in Japan that had never before been observed. And so the, the idea behind these observatories partly is that they're much more sensitive than a lot of other ways that you can sense or measure uh, the deformation or the contraction and expansion, so-called creaks and groans of the crust. We're hopeful that in New Zealand we'll be able to not just to monitor the slow slip events that we know are happening, but actually to see perhaps with even more detail and with higher sensitivity what's happening in the lead-up to those events and following those events. Some of the data being collected in the observatories um, is pressure data, including pressure at the seafloor, and, and we can actually detect passing tsunami waves from pressure changes being observed on that, on that pressure instrument. So if we were able to eventually link these observatories up to land, say via fiber optic cable, and get the data in in real time, these, these observatories could actually be used in tsunami warning systems. So that's another um, really potentially important application of, of the observatories that we've installed here. Thanks, Laura. That was Laura Wallace from GNS Science, and we also heard Phil Barnes from Niwa and Damien Safer from Pennsylvania State University. And that's the show. But you can always listen to tonight's stories again and check out photos and articles at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Stay in touch with us. We love to hear from you. We're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science and our email address is ourchangingworld at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. Catch you next week, but until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Mario. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.